This is the American Cinematographer Podcast. I'm Ian Stasikevich, a contributing writer for American Cinematographer Magazine. In this episode, cinematographer Ed Lockman ASC talks about his work on the independent film Howl. Best known for his collaborations with director Todd Haynes, Lockman approaches his work with a classic beat sensibility, emphasizing creative expression rather than establishing guidelines, making the life of a poet an ideal subject for his talents. Howell tells three stories. It tells the story of the poem, and it reenacts the 1957 obscenity trial of publisher Lawrence Ferlinghetti, and it also charts the creative trajectory of the author, Allen Ginsberg, who's played here by actor James Franco. Ed, Howell isn't the first Beat Generation film you've been attached to. There was Todd Haynes' film, I'm Not There, which was more about Bob Dylan than it was about the Beats, but there were also films about other poets, like Burroughs and Kerouac? Well, I was actually involved in two other projects. Um, Oh, about 10 years ago, uh, Francis Ford Coppola wanted to do On the Road, and uh, he wanted to do it kind of um, with a very small crew, uh, not all known actors, and believe it or not, he could never get it on the road. So that that was one project that kind of introduced me. I was always around and interested in the beats because of their sensibility, but that was like the first possibility of a filmic expression of the beats. And then another project came my way called Dead Beats or The Beats, and uh, that was based around the true story about Lucian Carr and his relationship to David Cramer, who uh, was actually possibly inadvertently murdered in uh, Westside Park uptown. Um, And they all became accomplices in this uh, murder, Ginsburg, Burroughs, and Kerouac. Anyway, so that that was the script that I was going to direct and shoot. Um, but again, that hasn't happened yet. And then the other project that I was involved in and did shoot was I'm Not There, which Dylan's influence was influenced by Ginsburg and Ginsburg by Dylan. And so that was certainly an element and, an, and a sensibility that was expressed in part of Todd Haynes' film. You've done an incredible amount of research for these projects uh, over the years. Where did you begin? Well, what's always interested me about um, researching imagery for a period or a certain time is one doesn't actually, I think people get confused with the idea that you're imitating a style. You really have to find out what a style embodies. In other words, you know, why were those images created the way they were? It isn't the effect of the image later to say, oh, it was handhold or it was grainy black and white. You have to go, I think, further than that and understand what the sensibility and the means were at the time, why those images were created. And then if you can understand the mythology or the reasons why those images or how they were created through an aesthetic, then you can approach those imagery. And of course, your images are going to be similar in um, character, but it's more important that they're representational in spirit. Are you talking about a specific time period? 
Well, let's say, you know, the beat period. You know, everyone seems to connect to the beats because they've been so influential from the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. You know, the, you know I mean, if you think of uh, Kerouac really embodying the 50s, you know, the whole idea of bebop jazz and the stream of consciousness of... Um, writing and you know making it a very personal subjective viewpoint and then i would think ginsburg was more kind of a 60s uh you know he was embodied by the 60s or um embraced by the 60s because of his um you know his his buddhist attitude and his idea that poetry could be translated into a popular culture statement and that it was an expression of personal freedom and and drugs and these were all things that could heighten your subjective viewpoint and then we could look at Burroughs more like a um, 80s character of let's say the punks because you know they were reinventing themselves and in a sense you know breaking down a system that they found was corrupt and I always felt Burroughs' writing had that element of where he was deconstructing the uh, the imagery and the context of the uh, social and political mores of the time. And it's really interesting to hear because you generally don't think of the 70s or the 80s as being part of the beat generation. You know, this term beat was really codified after they were doing what they were doing. So it was always... People have to have an understanding of a cultural or an artistic seeming movement, but they all worked in different ways. But in Burroughs' sense, he was deconstructing a language to create a new language. And um, in Ginsburg, you know, he, here was a person who was, you know, struggling to find his personal sexual and poetic freedom in in like the poem Howl that you know, is the film that we're going to talk about. So it, for him, it was like a way of finding his own voice. But the, the one thing I think to characterize the beats were that it was a personal exploration. You know, if you look at like the arts at the time, you know, what was happening in abstract expressionism and painting or photography like uh, Louis Farrow or Robert Frank, um, they were all expressing something to say, look, we don't need a three-act narrative. The whole idea of narratives creating a collage-like experiment, in the inventiveness of language, narration. In other words, using yourself as the medium to create the, the point of view towards your own character. I mean, this was kind of liberating. I mean, there were people like Whitman that, you know, Ginsburg referenced himself to, but but this idea of a consciousness of like, we can write about our own personal experiences. We can take a camera and look through a camera and it's what we experience through the camera rather than we're documenting something. We're documenting our interior and showing it through the exterior. And I think that that's really the important part of what made that style or work or period so important to even contemporary and postmodern art. And when you, when you look at what this poem meant for Ginsburg, it was his own struggle for personal, sexual, and poetic freedom. 
this was the liberating factor when it when the case, you know, the film is broken down through this courtrooms in San Francisco, and then we interview uh, Ginsburg, let's say, or uh, you know, James Franco in his apartment in New York. Each of the different time periods have different looks, like the scenes with Franco as a young Ginsburg in 1952, or all in black and white. And uh, yeah, and I chose to do that in um, 16 because I felt the grain structure would 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 uh, emulate or have a feeling more to give more of a texture to the world. And in the beginning, we show Ginsburg first reading uh, Hal at uh, Gallery 6 in San Francisco, this warehouse that they would have poetry readings. And that was shot actually in 35 black and white because I wanted to make a difference between the 35 black and white and the Super 16 black and white. Just that, that Super 16 had a more personal, let's say, for better or worse, Super 8, you know, feel to it. Even no, I didn't. I didn't get into the whole idea of like handhold is, you know, the equation of uh, real or personal. Uh, you know, the whole idea that this is uh, has a validation for emotional realism. I, I've always I think that's been overused. So I wanted to shoot it more in the style of let's say Robert Frank had shot. Pull My Daisy, in which Ginsburg is actually in that film, which he actually shot it on a tripod at the time, more like a still photographer creating still frames and still images. You're obviously influenced by the writers of that era. And other than Robert Frank, uh, what else about the beats inspires you from a visual perspective? I mean, Robert Frank has probably been the the biggest influence for me visually or, or really through his images, I discovered the beats or discovered, you know, my own attitude about what I respond to and imagery was that he created a poetry out of shards of reality that, that, that you could see from his point of view um, that he was showing something personal about how he felt about something. Robert Frank images kind of are a reflection of his character. America's uprootedness, the unassimilation, the things that he found around the edges of things, things that were visible but not seen. And so that, that to me was, in the way Robert Frank used images as kind of a form of visual poetry, actually Ginsburg was influenced by Robert Frank, they became friends. And um, actually, Ginsburg did a book himself, but basically photographed just his friends and that later became the Beats uh, in a book he did over the life, over his life called uh, Snapshot of Poetics. Um, but he was a great admirer of Robert, and Robert was a great admirer of Ginsburg. And in, it happened for Dylan, too. When Dylan left his, his so-called finger-pointing songs that, you know, were traditional folk music, this one he was in one another stage of re, reinventing himself. He said, I want to write from inside me. For it, 
for it to come out the way I walk and talk. You know, and, and what he got, I think, from Ginsburg is he, he found Ginsburg, you know, created images by joining the mind in, in these collages of where um, Ginsburg's music of language through poetry uh, created words in abstraction that you could use in, in, in songs. And Ginsburg looked to Dylan to bridge poetry into popular culture. You use the word imagery a lot, and you know one of the things that strikes me about the work of Ginsburg and Burroughs and Kerouac is the poems are abstract, but the words elicit vivid pictures. Well, you know, strangely enough, I always thought that would be the problem of creating images for a Dylan song or even a film about Dylan, because his images or his words, his words are the images. So how do you create images for words that are the images? And, and, and I think Todd Haynes did it brilliantly by finding other visual references like referencing filmmaking of the time, like Dylan reinventing himself as a different actors or characters, you know, going from, let's say, uh, black and white of uh, eight and a half of Fellini's films where, you know, you have a character that's um, recreating himself through his interior world uh, and not, and not, and not falling to the device of, let's say, doing don't look back and doing it as a documentary, but doing it about what actually Dylan was going through emotionally at the time, which was, you know, how does he resolve his public life with his personal life and his personal searches? So what better way to do it than through the character in Eight and a Half, where he feels entrapped by his fans, his management, his love affairs. So... Or, you know, let's say then Dylan, when we use the Heath Ledger character, which is kind of a reference to early Godard, and Godard's films have always been about his own personal struggle or with his own relationships to girlfriends and his life. and Which brings us back around to Howell, which is a lot more like a visual poem than it, a straight narrative. Uh, and you talk about looking at different ideas through different lenses and you know how you do that in this case is through different time periods so you have black and white of 1952 and there's the very formal look inside the courthouse uh, in 1957 and then the scenes in Ginsburg's apartment in 1959 seem to resemble old faded Kodachrome stock well, what I was trying to do there is I was trying to say the courtroom where Ferland Getty is on trial for Hal and the, the poem in his book and his um, bookstore, City Lights, that published it, uh, I was trying to evoke the, the, the straight world. So the, the, the language there is, is very static uh, slow moves in the the camera's always following the action so just and and I also limited the color palette in other words where I I kind of had kind of a, a reddish brown it was the courtroom had this woody quality to it I, you know it was all 
in kind of you know the the stature of of what law and what the state you also you also see the flag of the California state behind the people that are being in, interviewed and on on the stand and so I wanted I wanted a kind of a formalism to that world and and I did it in kind of a, like I said a reddish brown that I felt uh, evoked um, a feeling maybe of California but also of uh, uh, some kind of conformity to to that world that was the straight world per se and then when I I look to Ginsburg when I'm he's in his apartment again I was trying to reference how color film could look back then using color film today so I limited the palette of I kept it very cool because for me living in New York um there, there's always a certain street feeling to things for me. You know, the, to me, there's always a feeling of uh, the exterior world is part of the interior world, and the street becomes. So I play with color temperatures a lot, and and there I, I let I I shot tungsten film. Uh, Fifty-two nineteen, but let the daylight come in the windows without correcting it. And then I do have some tungsten lights on in the room. But in the day scenes, I just let the color temperature go towards a cooler cyan blue-green because there was a lot of green in the set. And I I wanted this set to have kind of a greenish, yellow-greenish palette to feel more... That he's not living in, in you know, like uptown or, you know, I wanted to feel more like a downtown feeling. So th- that was that. And then there's some color that's very saturated because I wanted to give more of a feeling of a crotochrome look of some of the scenes where he has remembrances of his mother and things. So that that was kind of like more from the feeling of like a home movie. So the colors are more saturated there. And I try to use slower film stocks and uh, imbue that with more color. The other thing about black and white versus color, you know, there's always a discussion like, oh, today in a DI, we can um, create black and white in a DI. And and even in a film like uh, I'm Not There, I made the conscious decision with with Todd that we should shoot it in black and white. At the time, we didn't know exactly why, except we knew that it, that's what was done at the time. So why not do it now if you could, even though it's a lot more complicated. But what I started to realize was the grain structure is totally different of black and white versus color film because they really haven't updated the um, chemistry for Uh, the emulsions of black and white so you inherently get uh, a different kind of grain and the exposure latitude of black and white is totally different than these modern color stocks which to me look almost digital so I in fact many times I I always push color stock because I feel it's it's too clean it's it loses the feeling of what makes film different than video. Um, so in this film, I certainly want to try to reference 
feeling of color stocks to evoke the feeling that we could be in that world at another time, another place. How important is authenticity to this process? You know, authenticity is only important as if it emotionally connects you to the story. It isn't that because I use this lens because it was used, they used the same lenses back then. It's a question, what, what does the image evoke emotionally? You know, we want the, I always want the audience to connect to the story through the characters. And so whatever devices I can try to use to, to find kind of a subjective viewpoint to the characters, that, that's what I'm interested to try to do. Howl is a live action film and it's, and it's an animated film. Half of it is animated, half of it is live action. The animation interprets the words of the poem, the prose. Did the cinematography, did, did your work ever intersect with the animated world? Well, you know, we knew that this was an element, but obviously we, we didn't have that animation with us at the time. So what I tried to do was, in the post-process, in the grading, I tried to marry the animation closer to what I was doing in live action. Um, You know, I saw sketches, but, you know, this was done by Eric Droker, uh, who had worked with Ginsburg. And um, I I really, until it was actually done in Thailand... um, so until I got that material, and it was actually even different styles in the animation. You know, being a writer is kind of a solitary occupation. You really only need one person to get an idea down on paper. Uh, but making a movie, on the other hand, is it's completely different. I mean, it's, it's a collaborative process, and you have a lot of people bringing a lot of different ideas to the table. And in this case, you actually had, in the case of Howell, two directors, uh, Rob Epstein and Jeffrey Friedman. I, I had worked with them on the quilt uh, years ago, uh, which was a documentary. So when we met, we, we already had a familiarity with each other. And But I always think, look, cinematography and a cameraman is like another actor. We, we give a performance. So I've always seen myself as someone that I have to, I, I not that I have to, but I, I want to, merge with the director's vision but in a certain sense i'm giving a performance i'm interacting with the actors the story the set to hopefully contribute to the language of the cinema and what it has to say and how do you know when you found that are you looking for anything or listening for anything in particular like anything like this especially when you're you're referencing a certain period in time you're always looking for those clues in a script to find the visual language to tell the story in. And um, again, I think important is not just the way people have seen that period, but to understand the mythology about why those images were created, how those images were created, you know, why abstract expressionism, you know, was finding its its voice through, you know, um, Franz Klein or Pollock or, you know, what, what were they in opposition to? What were they searching for in their work? 
and and so that that's I think we went back to it's always best to go back to the references that you're referencing you know to go back to the sources and find what they were searching for in their imagery and then you try to do that yourself in in a contemporary context and music and art caught on to these concepts but popular cinema isn't traditionally considered avant-garde or abstract do you agree well i think people get hung up with that cinema is the illusion of reality but what's reality and uh Back then, there was a movement even in, uh, there, there were people like Jonas Mikas and uh, Bruce Bailey and uh, Stan Brackage. And, and, and you know, we reference uh, Robert Frank. You know, he was making films then. You know, me and my brother he made later. and But, you know, Pull My Daisy is like the seminal beat film you know it, it it had its own narrative it 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 it, it what didn't tell a three act story uh it, it was more of a personal uh exploration of who these characters were in this and it, the 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 dialogue was uh, didn't connect totally to a storyline it was more of like poetry and that was like a real breakthrough a film like pull my daisy because it it it, it broke um the narrative and but it also broke the word against the image you know you could assemble things in a different way well i'm not saying that the medium resists these ideas i i guess i was more talking about the audience it comes down to this it comes down to economics you know people want stories they need stories to understand their own lives and it's expensive to make a film because of the expense of it. You, you, no one's going to give you uh, money to make a personal uh, statement about, you know, how you feel about your story. And uh, so you have to subterfuge that into, let's say, a more mainstream way of making a film. I think there's always been films through, the, through history that have done something else. They're just fewer and far between because it's much harder to make a film like that. Hal was independently financed, but the means of production have become less and less expensive. I mean, anyone can pick up a digital camera today and tell a story. It's just, that's what we have to do. You know, I mean, we, we put the means of production in, it's a much more democratic process now to make film. And through the digital world, people are much more open to new ways of telling stories. It isn't that there isn't an audience for it. I mean, I was just at the New York Film Festival, and there were some wonderful films. You know, I mean, there are filmmakers like Kelly Riker, who has this wonderful film I just saw called Meek's Cutoff, and um, about the settlers going across the Oregon prairie, and beautifully told story visually and also socially and politically um you know we we talked about godard earlier you mentioned him but we didn't stop uh, to talk about the french new wave at all and and to me it seems that that was kind of a of a response to the beat generation um in the world of popular cinema but only in europe at the time except for maybe i don't know here in the states you got filmmakers like john cassavetes all this happened, you know, after 
the war. And, and it was kind of a, a response to the rigidity of the culture. And, and these artists questioned the conformity and the structure of, of the society and the sensibility of uh, a personal cinema or a cinema that could have your own uh, voice was, was something that was happening in Europe. And, and the, the new wave actually came out of a, a journal, Cahiers de Cinema, and they were writers, Jacques Rivette, Truffaut, Claude Chabral, Godard. And, you know, like the first film that, made it through was was a film of Truffaut's 400 Blows and then Breathless came after that in 1960. So this was all happening at the same time but even though they even referenced the American cinema they, they chose certain directors that they felt subscribed to their attitude of a personal vision or a kind of your fingerprint on even uh, genre films and, and directors like Nicholas Ray or Bud Bodicher or Sam Fuller, who actually wrote, produced, and directed his own films. So even though he was in, he was really outside the system, within the Hollywood system, and he, he was, Sam Fuller was, t till the end, was making films that way. Taken as a whole, how important is the work of the Beats to you as a cinematographer? You know, the idea of what the, what the Beats were about, they were seeking some kind of truth in their visions, their dreams, and other like non-rational states. They, they, they realized that you know, language or literature or storytelling. Even though we try to find a rational understanding of the world we live in, we don't live in a rational world. And so, why can't our work mirror what is uncomprehensible? I mean, writers have always been able to do it, and why can't we do it as filmmakers? That was Ed Lockman, ASC, talking about the making of the film, Howl. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and articles at www.theasc.com.